0: You're listening to the overlooked Heroes of World War II, where I'll remind you of the heroes from the Second World War, the men and women who displayed courage, valor, and bravery only to be forgotten by society. Hello, my name is Alfred, and you're listening to my first podcast on the Overlook Heroes of World War II. Now, to fully understand the story of nine men deciding the outcome of the Second World War by setting back the Germans' plans to create an atomic bomb by months, we must first understand what happened before and why heavy water was so valuable to both the British and the Germans. A good starting point for a story would be Leif Tronstad. He was born in 1903 on the 27th of March, and he was a Norwegian chemist who graduated from the Norwegian Institute of Technology in 1927. Later in 1931, Harold Ure discovered deuterium oxide, or heavy water, which laid a foundation for Tronstadt's research. Tronstadt later returned to the institute as a chemistry professor. He started on the 1st of May 1936, and at the time, he was the youngest professor. In his short scientific career, Tronstadt managed to prenate 80 scientific publications, and 14 of which were related to heavy water. Life Tronstadt later became a consultant for Norsk Hydro and helped build the Vemork Heavy Water Reactor near Rijukan with Joachim Brun. He went on to help organize the sabotage against the hydroelectric plant which he had built. He also organized Operation Grouse, Freshman, and Gunnerside. These were the three most important operations as they help sabotage the hydroelectric plant and decide the outcome of the Second World War. I want to tell you about the Vaymork Heavy Water Reactor, but first we have to have a basic understanding of heavy water and its importance. Deuterium oxide, otherwise known as heavy water, is a pale blue transparent liquid which freezes at negative 4 celsius and some people believed it could cure cancer. It has a molecular weight of 20 being made up of deuterium and oxygen. On the other hand, normal water or H2O has a molecular water weight of 18, oxygen and hydrogen. Furthermore, ordinary water has one proton and one neutron, where heavy water has an extra neutron. This leads to heavy water having an 11% greater density mass than regular water. Due to heavy water containing deuterium, it's also extremely rare to find in nature about 1 to 41 million. The reason heavy water was so important is because it was used as a neutron moderator. There are two naturally occurring isotopes of uranium uranium-235, which has 92 protons and 143 neutrons, and uranium-238, which has 92 protons and 146 neutrons. The extra three neutrons means they cannot sustain a nuclear chain reaction. People therefore use uranium-235, however, it has to go through a process called uranium enrichment where rows of centrifuges slowly increase the amount of uranium-235. However, some reactors use heavy water, allowing them to use unrefined uranium as a fuel, removing the process of enrichment. When uranium-238 is put in a fission reactor, the bombardment of neutrons leads to uranium-239, or plutonium. This can be used in weapons. If we look at the Manhattan Project, the first time atomic bombs were created and used, the two atomic bombs were produced, one using uranium-235 and one using plutonium. So it's clear why heavy water was so important as it allowed you to use much more commonly found Uranium-238 to create weapons from plutonium, rather than use a very rare Uranium-235 and go through the process of uranium enrichment. The Vemork Hydroelectric Plant is located near a town called Virjukan in the south of Norway. Vemork first opened in 1911 and its main purpose at the time was to transform nitrogen so it could be used for the production of fertilizers. In addition, the hydroelectric plant was the largest at the time, with a capacity of 108 megawatt-hours. Lifetron went on to pitch the idea to Norse Kydo of producing heavy water at the plant, and in December of 1934, Norse Hydro agreed, and Weymark began producing heavy water at around 12 tons a year through the use of electrolysis. The hydroelectric plant was located near Dam, which is where it got its main source of energy from, in order to conduct the electrolysis. In 1935, they shipped their first containers ranging from 10 to 100 grams. However, the demand was not very high and countries would only buy a few hundred grams at a time since they had no real use for it. Then in 1936, they shipped 40 kilos. This was a massive increase, but still nothing significant in terms of total sales. As the war started, the Germans' interests in heavy water grew as they realized they could use heavy water to produce plutonium from uranium-238. And in January of 1940, the Germans requested a whopping 100 kilograms of heavy water. This was a huge amount, and Norse Keidre wanted to know what the Germans would be using it for. The Germans would not tell them, as they said it was classified information. But Norse Keidre ended up finding out that they were using it to produce an atomic bomb and restricted them from getting it. In April of 1940, Germany invaded Norway under the operation code name This included the invasion of Denmark and Norway. However, since the two countries' geography was very different, the Germans had to apply different tactics. The invasion ended in June of 1940, after Germany had successfully invaded neutral Norway. Germany invaded Norway because of its massive coastline, as it was important for the Battle of the North Sea. Another reason was the Germans' ability to import iron ore from Sweden. Earlier in April of 1939, The German nuclear weapons program was created. It was known as the Uranium Society or club. And in December of 1938, two German physicists, Otto Hahn and his assistant, Fritz Strassmann, were colliding neutrons with uranium atoms and managed to split the uranium atom, which these days is called fission. This led to the uranium club's first efforts in April of 1938, shortly after the discovery of nuclear fission. The project later split up into three branches, they were nuclear reactor, uranium and heavy water production, and uranium isotope separation. Many famous scientists were part of the German nuclear weapons program, including Heisenberg. So it's clear why heavy water was so important to the German atomic program. Looking at the end of World War II and what happened, the resulting Japanese unconditional capulation after the first two atomic bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's also clear what power the atomic bomb program had and its importance for the German war efforts. So now let's start talking about the three operations. The first operation was codenamed Grouse, and this was a preparatory operation before the main operation. The team was made up of four men, the leader was Jens-Anthal Olsen and the other three men were Knut Haugland, who was the radio operator, Klaus Helberg, and Arne Kjellstrup. These men had all fled from Norway after it was invaded by the Germans and were eager to get back to the country and serve it. Now imagine risking everything for a mission and not being told the purpose of the mission only that if you failed, heavy water could get into the hands of the Germans and they could create a bomb capable of blowing up London. Now, this was ungraspable at the time, as the biggest bomb could only blow up about a hundred meters around. Now being told that a bomb could blow up the biggest city in the world was something the men were so surprised and almost didn't believe. Now before taking off, the men had to learn how to do parachute jumps as they were completely inexperienced. They only got a mere three practice jumps, so they had to be extremely focused in their learning. Later in an interview with BBC documentary, Knut Haukland said we had no difficulties with jumping. Normally, I would find this very hard to believe given their lack of practice, the fact that they had to jump at night into an uninhabited mountain range, however, we also have to keep in mind that these guys were extremely motivated as they knew what was at stake here. So when they said we had no difficulties with jumping, perhaps this is a relative comparison to the rest of the mission. Maybe learning to jump out of a plane at night in darkness over a mountain terrain with only three practice jumps was the easiest part of the mission. It sort of puts the odds that these men were up against into perspective. You might be wondering why I have a team of men do this compared to doing a bombing raid of the facility. Now, this is because there are two types of bombing raids, a high altitude and a low altitude. However, low altitude bombings are waste way more often as they are a lot more accurate. Keeping this in mind, it was impossible to do a low altitude bombing on Veimork as it was surrounded by a mountain range. If they were to do a high altitude bombing, the bombs would be extremely inaccurate and most likely affect the nearby town of Rijukan, potentially killing many innocents. Secondly, if all the bombs were to hit Veimork and only Veimork, they would not reach the heavy water which was located at the bottom of the plant covered by many layers of thick cement. On the 17th of October 1942, their plane took off, heading towards their home country of Norway. As the men jumped in the midst of night in the Lonely Hardanger Plateau, their only companion was the full moon. They landed and gathered their equipment, which had been dropped there on the drop zone, weighing up to a quarter of a ton altogether. They found their skis at last, which would have been their sole means of transportation, and they had a month to travel a distance of 100 kilometers, scout the Weymark hydroelectric plant, set up a landing zone for the planes and gliders, which would be arriving with Operation Freshman. The team decided on taking five days' worth of food and leaving half at the drop zone, expecting to come back in time. However, the journey ended up taking 15 days due to the harsh winter. As the day stretched out, the team had to ration their food and they would end up consuming a mere 2,500 calories compared to the 6,000 to 7,000 that was demanded of their vigorous exercise in the cold weather. Imagine Michael Phelps. We all know him as the fantastic swimmer and he swims in cold water. And after swimming for an hour in cold water, He, or 3 hours or 4 hours, however many hours he swims, he needs to consume 8,000 calories. These men are outside for 7 hours in minus 30 degrees, freezing and going with 30 kilos on their back, whilst transporting heavy weights long distances on skis. They must be burning a lot of calories and therefore needing to consume way more calories than just those 2,500 they ended up consuming. This meant they were exhausted and malnourished. And on top of that, their radio antenna was not working. So they couldn't ask for backup or tell uh, the people back home in England why the mission was taking so long. As the conditions continued getting worse, the team abandoned everything that was not absolutely crucial for the mission. This included a radio, two accumulators, a hand generator, a beacon to guide in the gliders, as well as tents, sleeping bags, weapons, and a cooking kit. This added up to a total weight of 250 kilos, which was broken up into 8 different loads of 30 kilos. With the equipment being broken up into 8 different packages, the men set up a type of shuttle system. This meant they had to do every journey three times, as they had to bring the load to a destination, then go back, and then bring another load there. Another reason for the exhaustion is explained in Anton Paulson's report of the mission, where he said, the snow was deep and heavy, and the men who went out out of the ski tracks sank up to their knees. Now, just imagine this for one second. You're just, you're going on a narrow ski path, and it's minus 30 degrees, you can see nothing around you. It's just you and another three men. And if you do just step one, one step too far to the left or the right, you sink up to your knees in heavy, thick snow. Now this is going to be hard getting out of, and I can just imagine how scared the men must have been since they were all alone in this harsh environment. As the days went on, the team crossed a frozen lake. And whilst this can be very useful in saving valuable time, it's also extremely dangerous as the original Grouseman team would have known since their leader Anton fell into the frozen lake and had to be rescued by the others. However, this did not take them long. And luckily they had what is known as a ditch kit, which contains spare clothes, a tent. And if it hadn't been for the kit, Polson would probably most likely have died. Now, just imagine that you're skiing on this narrow track and as Polson mentioned before in his report, the snow is heavy and deep and you, what your leader falls into a frozen lake. It's already negative 30 degrees out here and you fall into the water, which is just above freezing. The other man must have been so confused. And if it was me in the water, I would have been panicking. However, I highly doubt Anton Polson was panicking since he was a trained operative. The men must have immediately helped the man up. As as Anton Paulson got up, he must have been unable to move his hands and fingers as they must have been so cold and he was close to getting a frostbite. They then got their ditch kit, which they luckily had, and they had to quickly set up this tent. I can imagine they made some mistakes as they were rushing through it as fast as they possibly could. As they got it, they lit up a fire in there in order to get it nice and cozy. And they stripped Anton of his clothes and got him in there with a blanket around him to warm him up. If they hadn't acted as quick as they would, he would have died, as I said before. Later, on the second week of the journey, the exhaustion kicked in, and the team ended up only covering a distance of 2 to 3 kilometers. This is not a very big chunk when you consider the total distance of 100 kilometers. Then when the team finally reached their destination of the small hut close to the hydroelectric plant, they were in desperate need of getting in contact with the team leaders back in England, as they had not been in touch since the landing. They had to improvise, as I said before, their antenna, the radio antenna was not working, so they used three to four bamboo sticks, which they stuck together to make an aerial mast. Knut Hauglen later said, I got connection right away, it was first class. And the team later on went out to scout out the area surrounding to find information for Operation Freshman, which was happening later in November of 1942. The team discovered that there was a suspension bridge with a 300-foot drop, which appeared to be the only way of entrance into the hydroelectric plant. Later that month, on the 17th of November, 1943, three days before Operation Freshman, Knut Haugland managed to send a message to the British about the weather conditions. Let me read for you what the message said. Lake coated with ice and partly clouded with, covered with snow. Last three nights, light and the sky absolutely clear. Temperature about minus five Celsius. Strong wind from the north has fired down. Tonight, beautiful weather. Next, the team went out to a landing zone where they placed the lights in an L to guide the two gliders, which would be arriving from Operation Freshman. But when Operation Freshman failed, the men were ordered to retrieve back into the Hardanger Plateau and await further instructions. They ended up spending four months in this harsh environment. And as the reserves ran out, the men ended up surviving on reindeer moss. Think about how motivated these men must have been and how determined and how much willpower you have to have to eat whatever you find. It's such an unforgiving terrain. And I'm surprised that the team survived. If I'd been in their position, I would probably have starved to death. Let me tell you about Operation Freshman. The operation consisted of 48 young Allied men. They were accompanied by two Halifax planes, which were flown by two pilots. And they were Sergeant M.F.C. Straty and Sergeant P. Doig of the Glider Pilot Regiment. The second was flown by Pilot Officer Davis and Sergeant Fraser of the Royal Australian Air Force. The two bomber planes were towing two horse gliders, each with 15 volunteers, all under the command of Lieutenant Metheaven GM. The planes departed from Scotland on the 19th of November 1942, however the mission failed horribly and 41 of the 48 young allies died due to a number of reasons which I'll go into. First of all, shortly after the planes took off, they experienced communication problems between the gliders and the bomber planes. Secondly, they had to navigate across a 400 mile flight to a precise location in the Norwegian mountain range, which proved extremely difficult. Moreover, the weather was cloudy where they were flying, however at the destination the weather was good as promised by Knut Haugland. And thirdly, the two bomber planes were carrying extra weight of the gliders, leading to problems in the cooling system. Luckily, this error was spotted during practice and fixed. In addition, the the pilots were fairly inexperienced in towing the gliders behind them, as they had to adapt their way of flying to the extra weight of the gliders. Furthermore, the bad weather led to the two planes splitting up. One plane went to a lower altitude, trying to get below the thick clouds. However, it ended up crashing into the mountain range and killing the men on the glider and the plane. Meanwhile, the second plane stayed at a cruising altitude of 3,000 meters, or 10,000 feet. But the cold iced-up ropes connecting the planes and the gliders turned brittle and broke off. The glider crashed, and the men who had not died from the fall ended up being captured by the Germans and murdered in cold blood to send a message back to the Allies that the hydroelectric plant was theirs now. The grouse team on the ground were awaiting the gliders and saw nothing, but they heard the loud Halifax planes above them, and as the lights were burning and they were shining their flashlights at the sky, the planes continued circling until it disappeared. The men wondered if the plane had not spotted the lights or the signal with their location had not been transmitted to the other plane. On the other side, the the pilots had said their navigation system which were known as Rebecca's, had not been working and they had seen no lights. To them, finding the landing zone had proved impossible as all the mountains and the dark weather looked alike. And they had a massive area of 20 kilometers to search for and the small red lights were not helping them due to the clouded area. Later, Operation Gunnerside happened. It happened three months after Operation Freshman's failure. The mission, however, was different since the team were not using gliders, but instead parachuting in. And they were a team of Norwegian commandos from Company Linger, which was under the SOE or Special Operations Executive. Their aim was to meet up with the Grouse team, who, as I mentioned before, had survived in the Hardanger Plateau for four months on mainly reindeer moss. Now, I have so much respect for this grouse team as they have survived against all odds and are extremely motivated. However, let's get back to the actual operation. The operation had been organized by Leif Tronstad, who was a member of the Norwegian Resistance and had gathered intel in the plant from his connections back home. The Operation Gunnerside was made up of six men. They were led by Joachim Reneberg and the others were Knut Haukeleid who was the second in command, Fredrik Kaiser, Kasper Idland Diega Stormsheim, all three of which were part of the explosive squad, and finally Hans Storhaug, who was a cover squad. This team had undergone a very intense training course in Scotland with the SOE, and the men were told never give your enemy half a chance. The men would have been training exercises at night in the mountains and would have to sleep outside for weeks. The SOE was notorious for their guerrilla warfare and tactics and they only accepted the most athletic and elite soldiers. Furthermore, according to Timothy J. Jorgens, who is a professor of radiation medicine at Georgetown University, he said, after handing them their suicide capsules, Norwegian Royal Army Colonel Lefchongstad informed the soldiers. I cannot tell you why this mission is so important, but if you succeed, it will live in Norway's memory for hundreds of years. Now, this quote from a section of, his, of an article about the or operate, uh, Operation Gunnerside highlights the utter importance of the mission as they had already failed at sabotaging the plant once before and time was not on their side. The sheer pressure these men must have felt weighing them down and the willpower driving them forwards is unimaginable to someone like me who's never experienced war or been to war. Then, on February 16th, 1943... The six men jumped out the plane, and they had strategically dressed themselves in British uniforms under their kits, so if they were to be captured by the Germans, it would not affect the nearby Norwegian civilization, as they would not punish them for being Norwegians trying to do uproar in their Germanly uh, invaded country. Then, after five days of traveling... The men reached the grouse team, who had been located in a hut near the plant, gathering intel on the guards, the factories, and the schedules. They exchanged information, and the grouse team told them everything that they discovered in the past months. Then on February 27, 1943, the six men began their sabotage on the hydroelectric plant. They found that there were three ways to enter the plant. The first was by crossing the suspension bridge as the grouse team has seen before. However, it had a 90 feet or 300 feet drop into a gorge and the top of the bridge was heavily guarded. The second way was by arriving from the mountains above. However, this area was covered in many layers of landmines, which would most likely explode them. The third and last way was the most complicated of all. Now bear with me as I try to explain this. So first of all, the men had to travel to the bottom of the pit. Now this pit is the same pit that we're talking about on the suspension bridge. Then they had to traverse along a railroad until they've reached a lake. However, the lake was only half frozen, increasing the risk factor significantly as one of the men could fall in and get hypothermia and die, or even worse, alert the Germans. And to wrap it up, they had to climb a 150 meter mountain in order to reach the facility. Now keep in mind, they do not have any equipment or climbing equipment to climb this mountain. So if they fall, it's over. They decided to do the third and last option. As they were told by a local that the railroad was quite unguarded. After voting for the third option, the men carried out the plan and, after completing it su- successfully, the men cut the fence surrounding the plant with a pair of metal cutters. Now at this moment, you can imagine how scared the men must have been, as they had heard the stories about those that had been caught from their previous operations, and knew the same, if not worse, could happen to them, as the members of Operation Freshman never managed to break into the plant. Following the team split into two groups the explosion squad and the cover squad the explosion squad planned to enter from a side door however, the door was locked and Panic started to settle into these men as they realized their plan had just failed Luckily Joachim or the leader found a tunnel and he later said to the times Getting inside. I was quite certain the rest of the party would follow me But only one chap came the other ones hadn't found the entrance to the tunnel Therefore, we decided we would have to do it ourselves and started laying out the charges. After being split up, the other two members of the explosion squad, squad, who were Casper and Birger, were getting desperate and took a huge risk and broke the window in order to enter the plant. Joachim and the other chap planted the two bombs with fuses attached to them. They were decided to wait for two minutes upon lighting the fuse. However, Joachim shortened the fuse to 30 seconds as he was scared the Germans would find them. The bombs were placed in the heavy water production cells, and as they ran out of there, they heard a loud explosion. However, they were surprised that it was not louder. I can imagine none of the men looked back as they knew it would not be long before the Germans were being pursued of them. They later ran back to the hut where the Grouse team was camping and grabbed their skis from the huts and started skiing towards the nearby town of the Rijukan with the members of the Grouse team. However, this is where they last met up, and Jorkim and his men skied over 320 kilometers into Swedish territory while Grouse stayed in the Hardanger Plateau, avoiding the Germans. Luckily, none of the members from the Grouse or Gunner side were caught by the Germans. The operation was a success and the sabotage led to a 500 kg loss of heavy water. However, the the Germans later rebuilt Weimark and it was up and running by May of 1943. Then the Americans decided to bomb Weimark on the 16th of November 1943. But they did not achieve much from this as they damaged the plant an insignificant amount. But not everyone was as lucky as the plant. As 22 Norwegian civilians died during the raid as Life Tronstad had tried warning them about as they were planning Operation Freshman and going for a team of saboteurs over bombing. Lastly, in 1944, the Germans had decided to transport the last of their heavy water from Vemork back to Germany for their researchers. However, their ferry was intercepted by Knut Hauckleid and a group of Norwegians who together exploded the cargo and prevented the Germans from obtaining the last of the heavy water. However, it came with a price of casualties. Four Germans were killed and another 14 Norwegians were also killed during the explosion. Now, in today's age, we do not hear a lot about heavy water, and I certainly don't expect the normal person to know what heavy water is or its purpose. And this is because nuclear weapons have evolved away from using heavy water as neutron moderators and are now way more advanced. Lifetronostat told the men that if they completed the mission, their legacy would live in Norway for hundreds of years. However, today, a mere 76 years after the operation, this is far from well remembered. If you went out in Norway and asked people if they knew about the operation or the people involved, I doubt that many people would. The majority would not know the names and would look at you with confusion in their eyes if you asked them about it. Now how come these men who completed a heroic act that took courage, valour, and bravery costing them great personal sacrifices went on to be forgotten by society shortly after? History is never forgiving, but often forgetting.